Well, open with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is going to be a fairly lengthy message, so I want to warn you, I'm going to go as quickly as I'm able, which isn't always as, as quickly as I would like or as I would as I might think. But remember where we are in this passage of Scripture. Paul has been talking at great lengths about the major source of division within the church at Corinth. There was a, a huge schism that existed between the people based upon how they honored human leaders, the kind of loyalty that they ascribe to them, the application of human wisdom, the evaluation of human standards, elevating some against others, and fighting within the group about which one was better, and I'm smarter than you, and you ought to listen to me, and on and on and on it goes. And so when we come to chapter 4, Paul is making a very specific attempt to apply God's wisdom to how the church in Corinth is supposed to evaluate the workers that God has sent to them to help them grow in the relationship with God. So how you and I might evaluate a leader or a minister is going to be very different from the way that God would do it. For example, it's not uncommon in our culture today, within our church today, to evaluate a minister or a leader based upon the size of their church or the number of published works they have or the number or the location of the degree that they have or their basic popularity or their personality or some other external thing. But God looks at one thing when He evaluates servants of Him, and that is very simply faithfulness. Faithfulness has nothing to do with published works or the number of degrees or the size of the church. Faithfulness only is evaluated by our obedience to do what he's called us to do. And so this is what Paul wants to put wants to put in front of the church at Corinth to help them recognize how they are applying human wisdom and human philosophy and the evaluation of their leaders because it has created such a division within the church. So last week we looked at chapter 4, and we began this exploration of the servants of Christ, and we looked at three things primarily. A servant of Christ, his identity is that of what is called an under-rower. An under-rower is an individual who would be at the very bottom level of a ship, a galley, And he would simply row the boat all day long, all night long. He would eat there. He would sleep there. He would row until he couldn't row. And we've heard the stories of how people actually died in these lower galleys rowing hour after hour after hour. Paul says this is who a servant of Christ is. He is an under rower. It was a position reserved for the lowest of the low of the slave industry. You didn't even rank on the totem pole. You weren't even on it yet. You were the lowest of the low. He also says that servants of Christ are stewards. That means they manage what God has entrusted to them, and specifically what Paul identifies as being entrusted to him and Apollos and the others is the mysteries of God. And we would understand that to mean this. God's revelation of His eternal, infallible, perfect Word was given to these men to teach and to record, and we have record of that today. So you and I are not 
stewards of the revelation, but we are stewards of the truth of that revelation and that we do what it says and we teach others about this truth. So our faithfulness is measured by how willing we are to serve Him and how faithfully we hold to the truth of God's Word. Again, as I mentioned, the requirement of a servant is simply to be faithful to what God has given them to do, what God has told them to do, and this is going to be evaluated, not by others, not even by ourselves, but by God and by God alone. On the last day, all of God's children are going to stand accountable to God and they are going to give an account of their life and how faithful they have been. And what we could not see, God is going to reveal to us. And as I mentioned the last time we were together, I would imagine that this is going to be a very deep, remorseful groan when God reveals to us how unfaithful we have been doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. It doesn't mean that we're going to be punished. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But what is very probable is that you and I evaluate ourselves as we compare ourselves to other people. And when we evaluate ourselves based upon other people, we get a little proud. We're not like them. Well, say what they say. I don't go where they go. I don't do what they do. I'm better than that. I'm above that. And so we elevate ourselves and we have this self-righteous attitude and we look down upon others. But on that day that we stand before God, He is going to reveal to us all of the faulty view we had of ourselves. And I would imagine there's going to be a lot of disappointment as we have to identify that. Now, I also said this, and I still haven't tried to find out if this is accurate or not. I don't know if my unfaithfulness is going to be displayed for everybody to see. And if your unfaithfulness is going to be displayed for everybody to see, but I do know this, God is going to see it. God already knows it, and He will reveal it, and we're not going to like what we hear. And so this is our training ground to be faithful to what God has called us to do as His servants. So we're going to look now, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 13, and continue in our evaluation of what a servant of Christ is. Here's what God's Word says to us today, beginning in verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? You are already filled. You have, you have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You were distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. When we have, be, we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. 
Paul paints an incredibly different picture of what a servant of Christ is than most people would acknowledge, and most certainly the church at Corinth understood. So we're going to look at number four as we continue through this outline that was begun two weeks ago. Number four, number four is the attitude of the servant. The attitude of the servant will be reflected in how he views himself. As a servant of Christ, how do you view yourself? What is your position? What is your responsibility? What is your standing? If we see ourselves as a servant steward called by God for God's purposes, then our attitude will be humble, as we're going to see in verses 9 through 13. But if we don't see ourselves as a humble servant steward of God, then our attitude will likely be one of conceit, which is what we're going to explore in verses 6 through 8. So the attitude of the servant, letter A, the conceited servant. In general, the Corinthians were a proud and boastful people. It was ingrained in their culture. Not unlike what we find in our culture today. With the advent of humanism, the, the, the message that has been pushed down our throats is, you are important, you are special, you are entitled, you deserve a break today, right? Go have it your way. And this is what we begin to believe about ourselves, that we really are something important, that we really are something special. And so it isn't uncommon for people in our culture especially to have a very conceited view of themselves. So for the Corinthians, who were a boastful people, having that ingrained in their culture. They were proud of their wisdom, which Paul spent nearly three chapters examining. And this was a significant factor because they boasted about how wise they were. And it was in that boasting that this great division was initiated within their church. So this is a significant factor in the in the division they experienced. And so Paul continues to address this beginning in verse 6a. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake. So Paul says these things. And when he says that, we have to think, well, what are these things that Paul is referencing here? So these things refer to the analogies that Paul has already given in regards to the servants that God has sent them. Do you remember what these are? He gave the analogy of the farmer in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. One plants, the other waters, but God is the one that causes the growth. He gave the analogy of a builder. We build on a foundation, right? And what we build on our foundation is going to be tested in the last day. And it's either going to be, what we build is either going to be built with things that reflect high quality, the truth of God's word, the purposes of God, the plans of God, or something else, wood, hay, and straw. It's what I think. It's what I want. It's what the world tells me life is really all about. The last one of these things is the servant steward that we looked at last week last time in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. So Paul has directly applied these analogies to himself and to Apollos and to all apostles in general, but he has also specifically 
addressing the leaders in the church in Corinth. It isn't just about Paul and Apollos. It's about all leaders. It's about all servants of Christ. Just because you're not a pastor or a leader doesn't mean that these servant standards don't apply to you because they do. You are a servant of Christ because you claim to be His disciple and you call God your Father and Jesus your Savior. If you say that, then you are a servant and all of this applies to you whether or not you ever stand before a group of people and say anything about the Word of God. Paul has exposed these things to them for their sakes. Not for his own sake, because Paul understands who he is and why he is there, what it is he's been called to do. Apollos understands the same thing as Paul's under-shepherd, but the church in Corinth has no idea of what a true servant of God really looks like. So Paul is explaining it in greater detail for their benefit. So the conceited servant... Letter B, excuse me, the conceited servant is warned in this passage of Scripture. Verse 6b. You may learn, so that you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. So on the one hand, a humble servant is a, is a faithful servant steward who is faithful and meek, not proud. A steward is one who is trustworthy and submissive, not arrogant. On the other hand, Paul says, do not exceed what is written about how to value or esteem the servants that God has has sent to you. So as the Corinthian church has looked at Paul and Apollos, and other leaders, they've said, you're one, you're two, you're three, you're four, and if you don't agree with me, then you're beneath me, and I don't understand why you don't agree with me, because I'm smarter than you, obviously, because God has given me this wisdom and this insight. My guy's better than your guy. And it's just a vicious cycle of arguing about how to assign esteem to the servants that God has sent to them. So, What Paul has already said in this letter about the appropriate value that we are to assign to servants, back to the analogy of the farmer, back to the analogy of the builder, and what we heard already as a servant steward, Paul will expand in other books of the Bible that he has written. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul says, we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you and give you instruction. So Paul's instruction is to the service that God has sent to you, appreciate them. He would also say to his other protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So the servants that God has sent to the church to lead, to teach, to organize, to do whatever God has called them to do, you are to appreciate them, you are to esteem them, but you're not to assign more loyalty to them than what has been explained to you. Because if you do that, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. 
say it like this. Godly respect for ministers can turn into ungodly exaltation if we're not careful. Let me repeat that. Godly respect for ministers can turn into ungodly exaltation if we're not careful. Now, if you've ever attended a church for any length of time, and you had a pastor or a leader or a teacher that virtually everybody respected and said, man, that guy loves God. He walks the walk. He is the epitome of what I would expect a pastor, leader, servant to be. And then one day somebody says, well, you know, I don't know about what so-and-so says. How dare you speak such an unkind word against such and such? That guy can do no wrong. He's been a faithful servant for years and years and years. I have heard stories where a faithful pastor has been found guilty of adultery and the church has said, yeah, but he's been such a good guy for such a long time. Can't we just give him a pass? It's an exaltation that is unhealthy And if we're not careful, our esteem and or our appreciation for that individual can go into an area that God certainly would not be pleased with. When loving gratitude and legitimate loyalty to ministers is contaminated with our pride and our conceit, then the likelihood is that God's church is going to be weakened and potentially fractured. What God intends as a means of unity, and that is the leadership or the teaching of a servant, Satan desires to turn into division. And you know the old saying, if you give him a foothold, what will he do? When Satan is knocking at the door and wants to come in, and you open the door and say, who's there, what do you want? If you don't close that door quickly, guess what? His foot gets in that door and you begin the dialogue. Genesis 3. Did God really say? Will God really do? No, God's trying to deprive you because you're special, you're entitled, you're obligated. You're you're so good, you're so deserving. And we open the door, we entertain the conversation a little bit further. So the Corinthians had gone far beyond scriptural respect for ministers, and this had developed into factions within the church that was creating incredible difficulty and disunity. As is often the case, the leaders were exalted for the followers' own sake and not for the leader's sake. The leaders in this instance were not a party to this human glorification, but were simply used as a focal point for the pride that existed within the hearts of the Corinthians. In fact, the humble example of the leadership of Paul in Apollos has been rejected by the Corinthian church. And what have they done? They have replaced it with any number of the 50 Greek identifiable philosophies that were in existence in their day. Paul's not a good role model. Apollos is not a good role model. Joe guy down the street is because look at all that he has said and look at what he does. And so they have rejected the leadership example of Paul and Apollos and the factions gave the Corinthians a means to become arrogant 
in behalf of one against the other. You know what happens within any leadership group when there is division that cannot be resolved? It breaks. It comes apart. What happens in any marriage where the differences can't be resolved? It breaks. So this is what we need to recognize is that in our sinful, prideful tendency, we can allow division and faction to take place if we don't understand what God says and if we don't do what God has instructed us to do. So here the Corinthians have given far too much exaltation to their human leaders and it's become an unfixable problem. And this is what Paul has been addressing from the very beginning. So the word arrogant here that Paul uses means puffed up. It relates to an elevated sense of self or pride. And this attitude was being used against other groups within the church. You know what it looks like to be puffed up, right? You get the swollen posture. You walk around as if you're big man on campus. And who are you to question that? Who are you to do that without my permission? Who are you to go and do such a thing? My group is better than your group. My group is smarter than your group. My group knows the truth more than your group. This stuff can take place, and it does take place, within the church today. And it is this puffed-up pride that enables it to root in our fellowship well enough and deeply enough that it's going to create a problem that cannot be fixed. Now, the Corinthians were a very prideful people. This is the first of four usages of the word that Paul is going to use in Corinthians. And there's another three that will be applied to that. And so in this instance, as Paul is dealing with this, the sin of pride is confronted. Pride results in boasting and the Corinthians are proud of and proud in themselves. Now you say, well, I don't boast. I'm not a prideful person. How long does it take for us to shift the conversation to our children and their accomplishments, our grandchildren and their goings-on, and these other things going on in our life? And we have this sense of pride, and what do we have to do? We have to boast about it. We have to tell about it, because that's what prideful people do. The outlet for pride is boasting. And so this is what is taking place. They are prideful and they are boasting in their pride. And Paul is confronting it. And so he asks the simple question, why do you boast? And he does so in three parts. Letter I, this begins in verse 7. Who has elevated you? Boy, that's a tough one. Tough question to deal with. Verse 7a. For who regards you as superior? So let's think about it like this. You have placed yourself or your group or your knowledge or your, your understanding on a pedestal and you're looking down upon all the other minions. Who put you on that pedestal? Who's the one that elevated you to that place? This rhetorical question is specifically directed toward those who believe they are better than others and are the source of this division within the church. The very simple answer to the question, who has elevated you to that position is, I have elevated myself. 
What gives you the right to do that? I give myself the right to do that. Why do you give yourself the right to do that? Because I think I'm entitled to. <laughs> We're going to have this conversation all day long. That's how it goes. So who has elevated you to the position that you are going to judge and look down upon these other people? Well, I have elevated, elevated myself because that's just that's the way I am. That's who I am. And I'm not going to be convinced that I'm wrong. Isn't that just the way it is? People elevate themselves above others simply because they are filled with pride. I'm smarter. I'm wiser. I'm more educated. I'm more eloquent in my speech. I am better than you because I think I am. Well, the second part of this question about why do you boast, it continues in the second part of verse 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? This is, ex- <laughs> this is such, this is such a, a convicting revelation. You've put yourself on this pedestal because you believe you are the it factor. Well, what is it that you possess that wasn't given to you by someone or something else? As we consider how good we are, how smart we are, how wise we are, we must acknowledge where all this measure of goodness has come from. What does anyone have that in one way or another was not given to them? Think about this. We did not give ourselves life. We did not give ourselves the food and care and protection we had as babies and as children. We were not given an, excuse me, we were given an education. We were given our talents. We were given the country that we're born in. We're given the opportunity to earn a living. We're given the IQ that we have. We have been given absolutely everything that we have. No matter how hard we may have studied in school or worked at our business or at our profession, we would have nothing, nothing except for what the Lord and many others by God's providential hand has given to us. Now think about that. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. I've worked 18-hour days for years and years and years to build my business to the point that it is. Who gave you that ability? Who is the true reason behind your success? Well, you don't understand. God has given me. Oh, there it is. God has given me. God gave me the brain to understand and to figure and to solve. I tell you, I love talking with Ken because when I talk with Ken, I learn things that I have no idea about. Now, Ken's a very humble guy and he won't like me saying this, but he'll sit there and explain all of this stuff. And he was a part of creating these things. But Ken would be the first one to say, God gave it to me. I mean, he gave me the ability to figure this out. He gave me the ability to put these pieces together and come up, come up with this end result. So for you and I today, if we have a good pastor or teacher or leader, God gave them to you. If you have good parents, God gave them to you. If you live in a good country, God gave it to you. If you have a great mind or a creative talent, God gave it to you. James 
Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That is not relegated to just spiritual things. That is everything. Anything good in our life is a result of the goodness of God. Even in the lives of the wretched and the wicked, they enjoy what they enjoy by the good hand of God. And if we don't believe that, we have to be reminded that if God so chooses and if God so desires, just like that, we are gone. All that we value is gone. All that we think we have created can be gone. As Christians, we have been given even more. We've been given salvation. We've been given eternal life. We've been given God's presence within us. We've been given His Word to guide us. We've been given spiritual gifts with which to serve Him. We've been given His love and countless other blessings for which we have done nothing and can do nothing but simply say, Oh God, how good you are to me. All the gifts that we enjoy are gifts by the gracious hand of God. We have absolutely no good thing that we have not received from Him. So then, what does any person have to boast about if all that they have is from something or someone else? They have nothing to boast in because everything they have has been given to them. Now, the third part of this question about why people boast is found in the tail end of verse 7. And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received us? So why do you boast in what you were given? In other words, if they possessed only what someone else had given them, why were they boasting as if they had created the things themselves or if they had earned them on their own? The whole foundation of their boasting was nothing more than the fabrication of their pride. Nothing is more self-deceitful than pride, listen, because we are inclined to believe almost anything about ourselves if it is favorable. Is that right? The flip side of that is we don't want to believe anything about ourselves that is unfavorable. And so if someone questions us or challenges us, we don't like it and we don't like them, And we reject them and resist them. And we go back to our prideful way of thinking. And we are better than them. We're smarter than them. We're wiser than them. And on and on it goes. This is the result of pride taking root in our life. And here, pride is exposed to the church at Corinth. Verse 8a. You are already filled. You are all, you, excuse me, you have already become rich. You become kings without us. And so what Paul is doing is he is unmasking the conceit that they have 
by heaping upon them artificial praise. He tells them they are great and wonderful, that they're filled with every good thing. They are wealthy. They are like royalty. They had it all. They had arrived. And apart from the context that this verse sits in, the Corinthians probably would have said, you're absolutely right. Aren't we just the greatest thing the world has ever seen? But the context rips the mask off the pride that they possess, and it is a scathing indictment against the view that the Corinthians actually have of themselves. In Revelation 3, when Jesus spoke to the churches, He revealed this same problem to the church in Laodicea. Here's what we read, and I'm sure you remember this. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, which was the way they viewed themselves, just like the church in Corinth, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The Corinthians would say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, surely you're looking at the wrong person, because I'm not that at all. But in reality, that's exactly who they were. This is what pride does to us. It causes us to see what we want to see instead of what actually is. That's why we like people who speak favorable favorable things about us. That's why we avoid people who are going to challenge us in our self-satisfaction or in our self-righteousness. So having made his point, Paul expresses what he wished were true in the second part of verse 8. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we might also, excuse, we also might reign with you. This is going to make sense in just a second when we get to verse 9. So all of man's pride and sinful failure will one day come to an end. And this is the day that Paul is lost longing for, not only for them, but for himself, because Paul is experiencing a life that is filled with hardship and difficulty and is incredibly difficult to endure. So in direct contrast to the elevated position the Corinthians had created for themselves, Paul describes his own current situation, which will undoubtedly convict them of their sinful pride and of their boasting. Paul articulates the position of the humble servant. So as he has shown them how they truly view themselves, Paul is going to show them the reality of a servant steward who has the proper attitude. The humble servant is what Paul would describe. And so no longer using allegory or metaphor, Paul describes his current experience as he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, which is an incredible contrast to the way they view their own life. Verse 9, Paul says, For I think God has exhibited us, us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both the angels... And to men. To the world, the apostles were worthless men teaching worthless ideas, contributing absolutely nothing to mankind. The only thing they deserved was death. This was the same thoughts and attitudes that mankind 
has had toward Jesus and had toward Jesus during his earthly ministry. But just as Jesus was undeterred, so is Paul. Paul says, we apostles are a spectacle. A spectacle communicates something that is very uncommon for you and I. In the Greek culture with which Paul wrote and lived, a spectacle was the display of a Roman general who had just become victorious in a major battle, and he would enter into the city with a great military display, parading his officers and his troops, and behind them would be a gaggle of people in chains, and these were their conquered victims, and the king and his officers, and as a part of this spectacle, these conquered parties were ushered into the arena where they would fight to the death with human, excuse me, with vicious animals. Not only were Christians thrown into the arena to fight the lions, so were the conquered victims of Roman generals. And so Paul says that we are like a spectacle. And when this, when this Greek audience hears that, they understand exactly what Paul is referring to. This group of people being led to their death. This is what Paul is referring to. Paul sees himself as someone engaged by God in the service of the crucified Christ, perhaps even like a gladiator being led into the arena of his death. While the Corinthians craved social standing, the apostles were at the end of the line like conquered people condemned to die. The contrast becomes even more obvious in verse 10 as Paul uses a string of adjectives of foolish, weak, and dishonored. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And so with these adjectives, Paul creates a stinging contrast between his present experience and the prideful self-view of the Corinthians. Foolish versus sensible probably highlights the contrast and the content of the teaching. The wise Corinthians were teaching human philosophy and human wisdom, and the foolish apostles were were preaching Christ crucified. And so there's an incredible contrast between those two things. Since the apostles had given themselves to the Word of God, and since the Corinthians had given themselves to human wisdom, the messages were going to be completely opposite, and the message of the apostles was foolishness to the Corinthians, and their own view, filled with error and filled with infallibilities, was deemed to be more sensible. This contrast between the weak and the strong is one of condition, and it's meant to remind them of what God considers weakness and what God considers strength. This was articulated all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Again, you think you're strong, 
but God thinks you're weak. And you see us as weak, but God considers us to be strong. This contrast between, between distinguished and dishonored is a contrast of perceived position within the world. This highlights the seriousness of the pride issue within the Corinthian church as much as anything else Paul has said. They viewed themselves as something special which would automatically separate themselves from the lives and the experiences of the apostles. This position is highlighted in verse 11 as the apostles are suffering. Verse 11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And this description is the antithesis of what a distinguished life looks like in the mind of the Corinthian, even the Christian Corinthian. So look at this list as a direct contrast to what we read in verse 8. Paul says, you are filled We are hungry and thirsty. You have become rich. We wear ragged clothing and are homeless. You are kings and we are mistreated by others. Do you see the contrast there? Do you see the discrepancy between the Corinthian mind and viewpoint and the actual reality of a servant steward? If the Corinthians were honest with themselves, they would say, we want nothing to do With your way of life, we want nothing to do with your message. And this is exactly the point that Paul is making. And this is exactly why Paul is saying what he's saying to this church in Corinth. Because this is where they are. You see, to them, the message of the cross is still foolishness. Wisdom and strength are still defined by what the world says and not by what God has said. For you and I, as servants of Christ, we are to be faithful to Him regardless of what the world thinks or says or does. And if in our service to Him, we become poor and we become homeless and we suffer, then so be it. Praise and glory to God. Because who am I? I am the lowest of the low, a steward who is called to be faithful. Here the Corinthians perfectly reflect the views of the world. And Paul goes on to describe their situation as one of laboring. Verse 12, and we toil working with our own hands. So in the Corinthian culture, manual labor was not looked upon favorably. They had a bit of an aristocratic mindset where manual labor was for the lowest portions of society and is beneath me. And if you were smart and wise like me, you wouldn't have to do such menial things in order to provide for a way of living. They viewed themselves as being more dignified than having to work with their hands to provide for the things they needed. So in spite of the experiences of Paul and the apostles, Paul says, but we are not bitter. Verse 12b through 13a, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. Now let me ask you, Is this who you and I are as servants of Christ? 
What do we do when we're reviled? Ha! We revile back, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but buddy, hang on. I got something to say to you. And this is where we go. This is where our pride in our humanity takes us. What do we do when we're persecuted? We seek revenge. What do we do when we're slandered and we find a good lawyer? Right? Rather than attacking those who mistreated them, the apostles were committed to being faithful servant stewards to the God they loved and to the God they served. Paul and the apostles possessed a proper understanding of who they were and the experiences they had to endure. Paul would say in Romans 8.18, For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. This is a verse we need to have pasted on our mirror or engraved in our mind because when we go through difficulty and hardship, it doesn't compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us when we stand before Jesus and see Him as He really is. Paul would also say in Philippians 3.8, More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul says, bring on the hunger, bring on the homelessness, bring on the persecution, because in all of these... I know Christ better. I know Him more deeply. I know Him more fully. And when I am in this position, He is my strength. The final description that Paul gives of his present circumstances is this. They are considered scum. Last part of verse 13. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And in my limited experience, I've never heard the word scum or drag applied to anything good or favorable in my existence. Nothing. What is scum? What is a drag? Well, that scum was the stuff that was scraped off of a dirty pot and was very quickly thrown away. It was worthless. It was repulsive. It was good for nothing. The Corinthians viewed themselves at the top of society, and yet the apostles viewed themselves and were given this view as being at the very, very bottom. So this word scum or drag would come to be used to describe the most despicable criminal in the Roman era, and these criminals were sometimes sacrificed as a part of their pagan ritual because these people were good for nothing, and this is how Paul describes his own experience. We are like the scum of the world, the dregs of society, good for nothing. So this is how the world views the apostles. The apostles did not fight against that view, and this view was repulsive to the view the Corinthians had of themselves. And I would venture to say that this is not a very popular view within the American culture and society as a whole. It's not hard for believers to get along in the world as long as we live a quiet Christian life and keep the gospel to ourselves. But we have to know that if we are insistent 
on living out the gospel, of teaching it and preaching it, the world is going to take offense to that. First Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives, didn't make it there, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. Why? Because the world resents the light of the truth exposing who they are and what they are. Satan is the little g-god of this world and he is the ruler of this darkness. His kingdom cannot stand the light. It will persecute and, and destroy, if possible, those who stand in and live by the light. The world will attempt to scour off and throw away anyone who boldly proclaims the word. That's why we have the Christian culture war that we have in our society today. But here's what we need to know. Even though the world treats us like the scum of the earth and the dregs of society, we are not in God's sight. And it is God's evaluation alone that matters in the end. Therefore, neither in the world's eyes nor in God's eyes do we have a reason to boast in ourself. We are just called to be faithful servant stewards of the truth of His Word, that which the, the Lord loves in His servants, and that which will event, that which will which eventually will bring our, bring us our reward and glory, is our humble and our obedient spirit. So these things that God desires for us, humbleness and faithfulness, is what God is going to reward in the end, regardless of what the world thinks or says or does. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me, please?